Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today's guest is Lisa Alley, who's the Chief People Officer at Anglo Gold Ashanti, who are an independent uh, global gold mining company with a diverse, high-quality portfolio of operations, projects, and exploration activities across nine uh, countries over four continents. Um, Lisa has over 30 years' experience in the extractive industries in mining and oil and gas, uh, working for the likes of BP, Newcrest, um, as in a uh, HR uh, capacity. Um, Lisa's going to discuss the skill shortage in our industry, um, something that I've echoed many times on LinkedIn. Um, but we're going to dig deeper into this subject um, and hopefully provide some ideas and solutions as to how we can actually improve this within our industry. Um, Lisa's going to be attending Europe's largest mining event, Resourcing Tomorrow, which is formerly the Mines and Money uh, London, which is taking place in London on the 28th to 30th of November. Uh, it's, it's a great platform for the entire mining value chain where you can foster learning, um, be involved in lively debates and providing um, valuable networking opportunities for all. So I encourage you to sort of register now. Uh, you can get your tickets uh, in our show notes below or if you're watching on the YouTube channel below. So you can get some discounts on early bird tickets by using the code DIGDEEP10. So I encourage you to go and get your tickets after listening to this episode. So that's welcome, Lisa, to the uh, podcast. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm well, thank you. It's good appreciate to be here. Yeah, and I appreciate your time as well. Um, as I mentioned, if uh, you've obviously been in HR, in an HR capacity for over 30 years in mining and oil and gas. So I just wondered if you can give our audience just a, a, an overview of your career um, so the audience knows a little bit about, about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that you say I've been in an HR capacity for all, over 30 years. Actually, that's that's not true. My um, my career is a tale of two halves. I I usually say to people, I'm a technical person first. So my career started in technical roles, and I would have um, worked on major petrochemical plants in the Caribbean, which uh, at that time Trinidad was the largest exporter of methanol and ammonia, and I had the good fortune of being able to work in construction, commissioning, and largely technical roles for the first half of my career, ranging from project management, risk management, health, safety, the environment, running quality assurance, etc. And then moving on to new mergers and acquisitions within the methanol and petrochemical industry. Before I then moved to the oil and gas industry, and it was quite a, a, a a different role that I took up at that time. It was a role in human resources. And oftentimes people ask me, 
how did you move from technical to HR? And I, I jokingly say I meandered my way into there. But essentially, it was because I was always very interested in the people issues. In the technical space, I was always the people champion. I was always the one looking for new and novel ways to do things. And my chairman at the time came in and said, listen, I need for you to set up a, a human resource management team and run it at the same time. So I did. And I think that's what attracted BP to me at the time, where they wanted someone, one who had the technical ability, but who knew the people issues. And I stepped into the role of HR vice president with BP in Trinidad. So uh, the rest they say is history because that was when I began my HR career and moved from Trinidad to Brazil to the UK to Abu Dhabi with BP. Then left oil and gas and went into the extractives mining industry in 2020 as the chief people and sustainability officer. So I had the best of both worlds there again, where I had the whole sustainability portfolio covering health, safety, environment, net zero, all of the climate change work, and the whole people um, put at the pandemic time when those were the two most pressing issues as mine. So it's been quite an interesting journey. Yeah, no, that, and that's good to hear that you've actually been in operations and apologies for my uh, my research. Um, but it's good that I suppose you've been in operations and been at the forefront um, and had boots on the ground before right. coming into HR. So I suppose there's a lot of advantages that you that you have from being in operations and then moving into HR. Yeah, it, it actually gave me the opportunity. I've worked, I've worked night shift. I've worked um, around the clock on the, the site itself during construction, during, during operations. So it has given me a very hand view of uh, what it takes to operate out in the field and a really strong appreciation. So my approach to HR is to be extremely pragmatic because I've lived that life and I understand what it takes. I also understand the challenges that uh, diverse populations would face in a male-dominated environment. Uh, I mean, when I started my career 24 years old and I was working shift on a petrochemical plant, it was an operations team of um, 60, 59 men and me. So it gives you a very different perspective. But at the same time, those were some of the best working days of my career. So I come to HR from a very pragmatic perspective, understanding the challenges on the ground and not looking for lofty solutions, but looking for pragmatic solutions. Um, you made some comments earlier uh, this month about uh, mining skills cliff attracted a lot of attention. Um, I just wonder if you can explain why you're so concerned about what you describe as a capability cliff. Um, I think if you look at the industry, Rob, it's an industry that's vital for the future. Mining is critical to delivering the future of lower carbon emissions. It's also critical from a perspective of in developing countries, we have to be able to inject vital funds into local economies, support health and education, 
and literally lift these economies by providing jobs, developing local people, and so on. If you look at the demand for metals in our, in our world right now, there is a huge demand. And those metals are generated through mining. If you look at the industry in Australia alone, the mining industry has more jobs to fill right now than any time in its recorded history. If you look at the US, the industry has 36,000 jobs to fill this year, up from 24,000 a year ago. And that's from a survey from, from EY. And when you look at um, Australia, just look at the universities. McKinsey has recently done a study talking about what's the enrollment in mining degrees. And it's dropped by almost two thirds since 2014. In the US, college registration for mining courses are 39% lower than in 2016. So you're actually seeing a ramp up of demand for skill, but it's not being met by the supply. And that is quite concerning. And I suppose also, in addition to that, is people leaving the industry, maybe through reti re retirement as well. That's correct. When you look at some of the factors that have led to this skills shortage, if you, if you look at Australia alone, there are 103 major resources and energy projects that are coming through and in the pipeline. And that's, that's from a study done in September 23. These projects are either committed or seen as likely to proceed. Those alone will create an additional 30,000 new roles. And at the same time, when you look at the number of mining professionals that are retiring, Research shows that actually almost half of the current mining engineers will retire in the next 10 years. And if they are not being replaced, we are going to be left with a big gap. Some of our mining schools are actually shrinking and disappearing because they're not getting that enrollment into their programs that allow them to continue with their programs. Another factor when you look at this, Rob, is Another factor that has contributed is that over the last few decades, we've actually only invested in a limited pipeline. We've been investing in primarily males coming into the industry and bringing in males, and our female population has been quite low. So we've actually only been fishing in half of the talent pool. You put all of those factors together, you end up with the explosive a cocktail that we have now and that that leads to that gap yes yeah, certainly and i've been like i said i've been echoing this in um a lot of content that i've been putting out on linkedin over the last few years that there there is a skill shortage and it's only going to get worse um as a recruiter or and a search uh, a search a headhunter um, I see this because we map the market when we feel, when we look at any roles, um, and we we can see this, we yeah. can see this in in real time, and obviously you've backed that up with some of the data that you've you've just said. Um, it's probably more horrific from from what you've just said than I actually probably realised. Um, so yeah, it's 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 going to lead to 
to more work, worse skill shortage in our industry. If it's not bad already, it's, it's certainly going to get worse. It is. And if you actually think about the skills that we're going to need in the future as well, we're going to need a lot more technical and um, technology and digital talent. You're competing with all of the other industries for these skills as well. Um, what would you say the mining sector can do uh, to address this problem? Um, and what is Anglo Gold Ashanti doing uh, again, to, I suppose, address this problem. And I know it's something that probably can't, and it can't happen overnight, and it needs to be planned out strategically in advance. Yeah, I think we've not done ourselves any favours as an industry. Um, our industry has typically been seen and known as a dirty industry, one that destroys the environment, the recent headlines across the, the world around sexual harassment in the industry. We've not done ourselves any favors as an industry. And um, I'm not here to tell you that all of those things are not true, but I'm also here to tell you that we have a very strong value proposition as an industry. Most mining companies are up to and have been actually addressing the challenges and moving forward at the forefront of all of the challenges that faces the world, some of the world's most pressing problems, including the need to reach net zero by 2050. For example, if you look at most mining companies, you would see, you go into their sustainability reports, etc. you will see that they have a plan to reduce carbon emissions to get to net zero by 2050. This is not headline, this is not talked about, this is not splashed across the pages of the newspaper so that the public and the young people can actually see, okay, we have some very responsible um, players in the mining industry. We don't do ourselves any favors, we don't advertise it, we don't articulate our value proposition. I mean, if you think about AGA, for example, in 2022, we announced our commitment to reduce carbon emissions by 30% by 2030. And then we also have a net zero commitment to get to net zero emissions by 2050. So that was in 2022. And as we continue to move through the year, in June of 2023, we took a significant step forward in our decarbonization journey because we entered into an agreement with Pacific Energy to actually integrate renewable energy into our existing power infrastructure Tropicana in, in Australia. So we're actually stepping into that space and making investments in ensuring that we meet the net zero commitments and the reduction commitments that we have made. Very few of the students in high school and the parents who encourage their children to go to high school universities are actually aware of that. We are not a, an environmentally um, irresponsible industry anymore. Despite all of the politics, all of the conversations that are taking place, should, should we go net zero? The mining industry has made a commitment and we're moving forward. And a career in mining presents that opportunity to people to have a long-lasting and positive legacy. This is just one of the areas. If you look at younger people, they want to move into an industry where 
it's progressive where you are moving into cutting edge technology and you're leading in the application of robotics, remotely operated equipment and artificial intelligence. When you look at a lot of the mines across the world, there are partnerships between the uh, truck providers to move to battery powered electric trucks, to move to autonomous trucks. I mean, we ourselves at Anglobola Shanti this week, we've, we've announced our partnership with Sandvik to do um, trials of their very heavy, big battery trucks at the mine. And it reflects again the commitment. So I think as we start to look at the contribution that the mining industry makes to the society, to communities, you look at the role that we play in healthcare, you look at the role that we play in education, in Ghana, for example, our malaria program in Ghana has actually moved to protecting almost 2 million people from the disease. But these are the things that we haven't actually spoken about and promoted so that we can attract the young people to our industry. You could probably tell this is something I feel extremely passionate about. Yeah, no, you certainly do. And I suppose, again, it comes down to the brand of mining um, and and our industry actually in promoting itself. There's a lot of things around ESG that obviously is coming more into the news more recently uh, and across all industries, yet the mining industry has always attempted and done a lot of ESG in the past. Yet yet most people are, are certainly unaware outside of our industry. Yeah, that's right. We have done a good job in terms of promoting that, and we've allowed others to control the narrative about all of the ills that pervade the mining industry. And yes, we do have some work to do in terms of ensuring that our work environments are safe. And when I say safe, I mean psychologically safe, so that you bring diverse populations in, and they feel that they can be themselves, and they feel that they can be uh, bring their true self to work. We have to create the environment for those things. And that's also a work in progress. When you look at all of the big companies, you look at Rio Tinto, you look at BHP, you look at Newcrest, you look at Anglobola Shanti. All of us are in the throes of ensuring that we have programs in place that ensure that our populations feel physically and psychologically safe. And you don't you don't actually hear about those things and we don't spend a lot of time talking about it and promoting it. Um another quote that you uh that you made um around obviously our sector and the battles of shortage uh with skilled and unskilled labor is fishing in only half the available skills pool. Um I just wonder if you can elaborate on that. Yeah, for many, many decades, um, I feel like we have actually gone out and we have been attracting just simply the men into the industry. And, you know, you look at the statistics and they they will demonstrate that women are still very underrepresented in our industry, despite all the advances that we have made. Research actually shows that women make up only eight to 17% of the global mining workforce. And that's not good enough. And even though we've had, you look at the statistics of women who enroll in STEM studies, 
you are having a larger number of women over the last few years enrolling in STEM studies, but it's not materializing in the mining industry actually going out, grabbing them and bringing them back into the industry to work here. So I think we've got we've got some work to do in terms of attracting a second and almost 50% of our population into the mining industry. And there are several things we can do to do that. It's actually one, creating the role models because people like to go where they see more of themselves. So we actually have to pull females in. We have to we have to promote the fact that we've got females working. You can build a successful career. We have to actually help people to build that career. You have to actually help them locate and see themselves in the mining industry. Um, you mentioned obviously in your introduction that you worked obviously in operations. Um, how did you navigate the challenges of obviously being a female in a male dominated uh, sector um, and end up being uh, working through um, into the role that you are today? You know, people often ask me that question and it, it, it causes me to pause because I can't say that I've had any silver bullet to address all of the challenges. I can say many of the challenges that I see our young women facing now are some of the same challenges that I would have faced. Um, when I operate, when I was working in operations, for example, I do believe though that I was able to speak up and for some reason I never hesitated. So I actually took the risk. I was willing to take the risk of speaking up, of failing and of getting up and trying again, of saying, I don't know, I don't understand, of asking for help. And I think with that, I saw my male colleagues actually want to help and support. Then I built very strong relationships with them in the workplace. It was a very, I actually have to say in operations, I felt very supported. My male colleagues, we, we worked hand in hand, quite frankly, on the shifts. They helped. I did what I could um, to push them forward as well. I brought a lot of the new thinking. We kicked around the ideas and then we went ahead and we implemented. So, But it did not come easily at first because I think you actually had to earn your space in there and that earning your space was around being vulnerable being being clear that you didn't have all the answers that you needed help and support you had to learn from them and then they equally realized that they could learn from me and from there I think I actually had a lot of sponsors because some of my male colleagues were some of my greatest champions having built that credibility they used to actually say well, Lisa is the one who could actually put this paper down or do this paper for us or get the data here or do the technical research there. And that willingness to work hand in hand and very supportive, I think, is what helped me through. The sponsors helped me through a lot because they would then say, if there's someone who can get that done for you, it would be Lisa. 
And, you know, I was always willing to take the risk. It is very easy to be intimidated in an environment when you are the only person who is female. It's easy to shrink. And I think there were many days I used to think about, oh, do I really need to do this? But I actually stepped in, rose to the challenge, and took the initiative and took the risk. Don't be daunted. And as you step forward, people are willing to step with you. Um, there's studies that say we're, we're decades from achieving even 30% representation of women in executive roles in the, in, in the mining industry and in mining companies. Um, and in general, the pace of, I suppose, improvements in gender diversity in mining companies is relatively slow. What, what can the industry do to speed up this change? I think there are a number of things. I think if we look at how we have approached this challenge in the last few decades, which is where, which is what brings us to this point of underrepresentation, we've always looked for the the one silver bullet. We've always looked for the one um, big thing that we need to do. We've tried to go after recruitment targets without fixing the internal work environment that actually caters to a different need and a different population. So you found yourself in a zero-sum game when you do that, right? You attract people, you bring them in, they find that they, the environment is not suited for them. They leave, you go back, you attract more people, and you stand, you're running to stand still. I think what we can do is recognize that there isn't a single silver bullet, and you cannot put measures in place one at a time. You have to go at this with a number of parallel levers all at the same time. Otherwise, we're going to be having this conversation for many, many decades. You've got to. It's an and a conversation. You have to go out and reach the female younger population from high schools into universities. Show them the attractiveness of a STEM career. Show them the attractiveness of a mining career. Get them into universities. You've got to work with the universities to make sure the programs are set up to meet the needs of the mining industry. You've got to work with the communities so that they want to send their young daughters and girls into the mining industry, where traditionally we haven't done that. You've actually got to work internal to the organization to ensure that their work environment is one where females feel safe, both physically and psychologically, and they see that they can build their career with the company. So those are areas that you all have to work all in parallel. And I think the biggest thing for me at this point in time, and I feel like my, my patience is running out, quite frankly, I'm not prepared to wait another two or three decades to see movement. The biggest thing for us at this point in time is to stop accepting excuses of why we cannot do it. Because, as I said, we have seen a jump in enrollment of females into STEM disciplines. So whereas 10 years ago we were putting out 18 to 20% females in STEM disciplines, we're now putting out 37 to 40% in STEM disciplines. So there is that pool out there. So those excuses don't hold. We actually have to make an effort to remove the barriers as opposed to 
what I call taking the easy way out, saying, oh, well, it is hard to attract females. Well, it is hard, but identify the barriers and remove them and deal with them and not sequentially in parallel. Otherwise, we're going to be having this conversation for the next 20 years. Yes, certainly. Um, What message would you give to women considering a, a career in mining and also women that are in the mining industry? How, what message would you also give them if they were looking to sort of step up and get into sort of leadership and executive roles? I would say to them to be very clinical and systematic in terms of how they plan their career. Um, don't wait for your career to meander you through into middle management. Be very systematic. Understand what are the skills that you need to develop to move up to the next level and actively go after that. If it means studying part-time, if it means actively asking for the opportunities that will give you the on-the-job experience to build those skills, actively reaching out to senior people, telling them and have career conversations with them. Manage your career. It is your career. Do not wait for someone else to manage that career for you. And, And to speak up where the working conditions are not right, where they are not amenable to you growing your career, you speak up and ensure that we do something about it. So, and I often say to people, it is a partnership between the individual, whether male or female, and the organization, but you've got to actively manage it. And lastly, um, if you had a crystal ball, Um, and you had all the resources available to you, how can we as an industry um, close that skills gap? Um, Obviously, we've identified that we're way behind in what we're looking to to achieve. What would you like like the industry, maybe some companies, and you had a crystal ball, how how can we close this skills gap? Obviously, over decades, the skills gap is going to grow. How can we reduce um, the, the skills well, shortages think, in our industry? I think it, it takes active cooperation amongst the industry players. Right now, we're very we're still very competitive. We're competing for the scarce skills. We actually have to come together and actively determine what are the skills we are going to need. How much are we going to need? How are we actively going to sponsor universities' programs to get those skills developed very quickly? And it's not going to be the linear one, two, three, four years of undergraduate. How can we actually infuse that with on-the-job learning so you have a blended learning and you're actually offering opportunities for people to work and study at the same time. But it takes active collaboration and partnerships. The willingness of the large companies and all of the mining companies to say, okay, I will provide opportunities for these people to work and study, and the universities to provide the ability to study while they work. Because 
right now when you look at some of some of the most prestigious mining schools you go to school you study full time and you pay large amounts of money to do that a large part of our population cannot afford large amounts of money to go to university full time they need to be employed and we need people who are learning to be employed as well so it's really bringing those two together and then as a crystal ball i would actually also say there's active work to do in the communities in which we operate with the teachers with the parents with the younger students there's a stigma on the mining industry that we have to actively remove we have to actually demonstrate that this is one of the best industries to be in it provides such an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of others going forward Lisa, thank you very much for your time. Um, if our audience wants to follow the story of Anglo Gold Ashanti um, and some of the obviously um, content that you put put out there, uh, and maybe some papers that you may write and and co uh, content that you may uh, deliver, how can our audience um, follow follow the company and follow your your work? Uh, you can actually follow the company on LinkedIn. Uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also go to our company website, anglobolashanti.com, and it provides you all of the links to all of the interesting and exciting things that we're doing, all of the opportunities for work and um, opportunities to get involved. Right. We'll include those in the show notes accompanying this uh, episode, so uh, you can have a look there for easy access. Um, as I mentioned, you're going to be speaking at the, the Resourcing Tomorrow event, which is at the end of... Uh, uh, November. So I encourage our listeners and viewers to purchase your tickets. Um, and obviously you can hear uh, Lisa speak at the conference. And if you have any questions, I'm sure she'll be able to answer those. So I I really appreciate your time, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Rob. No worries. The best. Thank you. Um, and those that listen, really appreciate your continued support. Um, as I mentioned, Please appreciate you sharing these episodes uh, among people within our industry, but also, and especially with this episode, people outside of our industry. Um, if people are looking to get into the mining industry, then it's a great episode to listen to. Um, whereas Lisa's obviously demonstrated a lot of value that our industry produces and and certainly a an industry that should be considered to getting into so really appreciate your continued support as always um appreciate if you can have a look at purchasing a ticket for the resourcing tomorrow event and listen to lisa and many other speakers that are promoting our industry so thank you for your continued support and until next time happy mining thank you for listening remember to reach out to rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.